Everybody, how are y'all doing? I'm going to go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So, hey, y'all, I uh, want to thank Heather Fosnott, who is not here now, but I think is coming a little bit later. Uh, for taking the class last week, sort of on salvation history and looking a little bit at why God in the Old Testament seems to be such a mean fella. Uh, she did record it, but it ended up only recording the second half. So being the great teacher she is, she's going to take my recorder tonight and re-record it so that I can upload it and uh, people can hear it. So I'm sorry it wasn't uploaded to the internet last week, but it will be uh, sometimes, hopefully this weekend or the early part of next week. Before we begin, just a couple of things of housekeeping. Um, we, we've changed a few things sort of behind the scenes of how we can take people into RCA, and we're still working on our process of being able to help people really prepare and get to know more about the church. So I, I think we have about 10 people now all together that are going to be going through the RCIA either to become baptized or to become full members of the church. So is there anyone in here, I know we're going to have some people I'm sure coming after Mass, uh, who's new and who has, maybe has not introduced themselves to me. Would you mind raising your hand? I think I recognize everybody in here. Okay. Could you introduce yourself? Lexi. We uh, talked to you. We got on a You talked to Tim, I guess. Tim, yeah. Yes. So Tim is no longer doing that. Katie's she taking people home. She called me yesterday. Yeah. Then. So good, Lexi. It's nice being here. You're the, this My name's Morgan. Morgan. Okay. Are y'all, are you a sponsor? Y'all are both coming in together. We're both coming together. That's excellent. So welcome to Lexi and Morgan. And so <clears throat> for those who don't know, this is Deacon Juan Pagan, who is my faithful assistant, who has a great passion and love for RCIA. Um, so what happens is, for those who don't know, is after I give this lesson of the talk, there's going to be a small group meeting next door just for those people and, who are coming into the church or going through RCIA and also for their sponsors. Um, we're going to be meeting, the teams are going to be meeting next week to sort of plan a few things out uh, to be able to move forward. Man, do you mind introducing yourself? Your, your name? Ruthie. Ruthie. Okay, Ruthie. Yeah. That's, that's what I wanted to... I thought that's who you were, Ruthie. I'm Father Sibley. Because uh, I, I was expecting uh, you to show up today. This is your first time? Oh, second time. Second time. Okay. So Ruthie is another one who is new to this program. Um, so listen. So make sure that if, particularly those who are going through RCA to sign up, if there's anybody in here who's interested in learning more or interested in becoming candidates, please sign those inquiry forms. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, we need one for each of the candidates. So if you have not filled out one of those forms, please do so, uh, and then afterwards you'll be able to meet with Juan, um, or you can take the form home and just bring it next week. If we did that with Tim, do we need to? You should have it. You okay. sh we, should, we should have it. So, <clears throat> all right, y'all, so we're starting to pass now into the the heart of the matter. We've looked at some of the more difficult things philosophically, trying to understand the existence of God, where the Bible came from. 
Last week, looking at the Old Testament and how God revealed very gradually himself uh, to his people throughout salvation history. A lot of it, is, as we saw, was it was how the people in their own minds understood who God was. And so now we pass to that decisive moment in history, the fullness of time after centuries, if not millennia, of God preparing his people for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the chosen one in the fullness of time and what would be around, let's say, 0 AD as we know it today, Jesus Christ is born. Jesus, who we as Christians believe is the Son of God, who is fully divine, become fully man, fully human. Doing so, <clears throat> not so much to just teach us things, but in order to suffer and die so that we might find redemption, we might find salvation. And so we're at the high point of history and really the central point of our faith. The person of Jesus Christ, who we believe was a real individual, a man who lived about 2,000 years ago, <clears throat> is the focal point, is the center of everything we do, is the center of history. And we're going to talk about it a little bit today, and we're going to talk about it more next week. The truth is, we could, we could take a whole college course uh, on Christology, which is the study of Jesus. We could study so many aspects of his life. There's no way we are going to be able to cover everything in just two classes. So what I've chosen to do to sort of make it as easy and as digestible as possible is we're going to focus on two things. Today, we're going to focus on basically the life of Christ, who Jesus was, uh, what was his life like, and more specifically, how do we come to know this? We hear about Jesus. Well, how do we know who Jesus is? How do we know anything about Jesus or about his life? Next week, we're going to go a little bit deeper. And we're going to study some of the different dimensions of what it means for us to say that Jesus Christ is both God and man. Does he have a human intellect and a divine intellect? Does he have a human will and a divine will? How does he know things? Uh, how does he make choices? We're going to get into some more theology of trying to understand the mystery of Jesus. And I guess that's what we might call it, the mystery of Jesus, or this is just an introduction to the life of Jesus. So that I don't bore anybody to death, particularly those who've maybe grown up in the faith and know a fair bit about Jesus, I'm going to try to take it from a little different perspective that being the perspective of trying to understand how we have come to know what we know about the Lord. So that's a question that most all of you hopefully should answer or be able to answer. Where do we know, what source or sources do we use to come to know what we know about Jesus? The Bible, the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. We're going to focus on the Gospels, the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look at that quite a fair bit today. 
But what I'm going to do is this lesson today is going to draw from a couple of different sources. I know I'm a little bit behind on the credo blog, although I intend to catch up tomorrow. I have a couple of hours dedicated to that. But what a lot you're going to hear today is if you want to do more reading, will come from Cardinal Ratzinger, who was or who became Pope Benedict XVI, the Pope before Pope Francis, wrote a series of three books on Jesus of Nazareth. The first is on his public life, the second is life and his death and resurrection, and the third was on his birth, what we call the infancy narratives. And so if you really want to have a great way of looking to understand who Jesus was, particularly from a biblical, Catholic, and historical perspective, that, those are the books to read. And, and to be honest with you, they're not that difficult. Some of you may read it and say, Father, you're crazy. They are that difficult, but you could read something which is, which is certainly more challenging. The other book, though, that I'm going to draw very heavily from is from Dr. Brant Petrie. Some of you may know who Dr. Brant Petrie is. He taught for a while at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans. He's sort of one of the big, young, Catholic, biblical scholars. About two years ago, he wrote a book called The Case for Jesus. How many of you read that book or are familiar with it? It is really easy to read. And he basically lays out the argument of who Jesus is, why we believe the Gospels, and how we can understand Christ from a Jewish perspective. And that's going to be really crucial for us today. If we're going to understand who Jesus was, we have to situate him within the perspective of, of who he was, of where he was from. He was a Jew to be able to fully understand what he taught, who he was, and his life. Also, there's another book that some of you may know. It was written in the 70s, not by a Catholic, but by a, a Protestant called Lee Strobel. And uh, his book is called The Case for Christ. Some of you may have seen the movie that came out last year. He was basically an atheist reporter. Well, his wife had this big conversion through an evangelical church. She came to believe Jesus by this sort of personal encounter. He was much more intellectual, and he began doing research into this person of Jesus. And through years and years of research, came to believe that indeed the stories in the gospel were true, and he was the Son of God. Another great book to learn about Jesus is by our Bishop Fulton Sheen called The Life of Christ. Bishop Sheen was sort of the great Catholic apologist of the 50s and 60s wrote a really large, very easy to read book on the life of Christ, which sort of gets into the Jewish and historical perspective and can really broaden our understanding of who the person of Jesus was. But what we want to do, though, is focus on the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We primarily come to know about Jesus, about his life, about his teachings, about who he was through the scriptures. And these are the four gospels, the four accounts of our Lord's life. One of the things to notice is that in these gospels, none of them are anonymous. We don't have any just sort of random, anonymous account of Jesus. There are names of specific individuals who from the very, very beginning of the days of the church 
we knew or believed that these Gospels were written by these four individuals. Now, as I said a few weeks ago, do we actually have the Gospel that Matthew wrote or Mark wrote, that actual manuscript? No, we don't. But we have very, very early copies, and we're able to compare those texts and be able to get a pretty good idea of what the original text would have looked like. So they're written by four different individuals, as we'll see at four different times, but they're all written from the perspective of an eyewitness. This is what y'all got, it's so important to understand. These Gospels weren't like Bishop Sheen's book that was written 2,000 years later. The, the authors of the Gospels, again, we believe that they were truly the authors, are written from an eyewitness perspective. People who were there at the time, who saw Jesus, or who knew people who worked and lived with Jesus. They're written very, very close to the time that Jesus would have died and uh, ascended into heaven. And so Matthew, the first one that we have, who is Matthew? Matthew is the tax collector. He was someone who for three years at least intimately lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, uh, learned from the Lord, was there and encountered him in his resurrection. And so you get a very, very close first-hand account. John, we also know or believe, was the beloved disciple, the one who rested his head on Jesus' chest, the one who was there at the foot of the cross. John was another eyewitness, although the truth is John also, we believe, would have had the, the insight from living with Mary. Our Lady, he took her into his home, as the Gospel says. And so if you had the mother of Jesus living with you, you're going to ask her all kinds of questions. And so John's Gospel, as we'll see, is a, a little different than the other three Gospels that we call the Synoptic Gospels, that sort of give a synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus. John's is a lot more mystical. It's focused around the seven miracles or wonders that Jesus worked. Now Mark was not one of the apostles. But how can we say that Mark, who is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles and is mentioned in the, some of the letters of Paul, how do we know who Mark was? Mark technically not mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, Mark mentioned uh, in some of the letters of, of Paul. Mark, we believe, we know, was one of the disciples of St. Peter. So if you read Mark's Gospel, it's really seen from the perspective of Peter, that Mark would have been around at the time, would have known some of the main characters, and would have been able to get a version of what happened through Peter. Now what makes that important is that our friend Peter, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it plays very, very prevalent there, and also is shown to be kind of an idiot the one who's constantly making mistakes, putting his foot in his mouth. And so it sort of shows the humility of Peter willing to tell these embarrassing stories about himself so that Mark could be conveyed. Luke, who we believe was the physician, who wrote not only the Gospel of Luke, but also the Acts of the Apostles, 
we know maybe didn't know Jesus directly, but was a companion of Paul. And guess whose feast day we're celebrating today? St. Luke. And so reading from the Gospel of Luke and from the letters of Paul, I think it was 2 Corinthians, talking about Luke traveling with him. And so Paul, who would have known, of course, Peter and the other apostles, would have encountered the risen Lord right after our Lord's resurrection, uh, was able to relay some of these stories. Luke also has a number of stories of the infancy of Jesus, which arguably we believe Luke would have met the Blessed Virgin Mary and potentially heard some of those stories from him. And so you have four individuals who would have been very intimately connected to Jesus and would have known his story. Now, you say, well, Father, they're eyewitnesses, but if you read all four of the Gospels, they're not all exactly the same. Why don't we just have one Gospel? And we know that the Gospels are, kind of contradict each other. There's some confusion in there. Obviously, it's not true. Well, I'm sure you all have heard this account. Imagine that there is an accident that happens uh, at an intersection. And there are four different individuals standing on the four corners. And the cops come to say, hey, tell us what you witnessed. If all four of the accounts were exactly the same, would you believe that they were telling the truth? Most people would say no. You would not believe they were telling the truth because four different perspectives, the four different individuals, they're going to remember things differently. They're going to see things differently. They're going to retell things differently. The central element is going to be true. Hey, we saw a car wreck. There was, you know, brakes were put on, people were hurt, whatever. Some of the details may be different, but it's those discrepancies, actually, that lend credibility to the story. And so if we're going to look at these four eyewitnesses, we are going to see a little deeper credibility to the story. Now, why do you think, though, at least from the perspective of the Holy Spirit, why do we choose four? Why don't we just have one? Why can't there just be one account, one definitive account or revelation of who Jesus was? What do you think the deeper meaning of this is? Each gospel has a different, um, how I say, like, each gospel has a different role of Jesus. True, this is true, we're going to get into that, but I think the real deeper reason is this, is that it shows how the Lord wants to incorporate humans in the spreading of the gospel. That our own opinion, our own experience matters. As we learned in the Old Testament, you have all these different prophets speaking, you have all these different works. You don't have, like in, 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 in Islam, Allah speaks to Muhammad who writes everything down. Everything down is definitive, one person. Here you have different perspectives, people from different ways of life, all speaking the same truth. And even the different apostles are, who wrote Paul and Luke and Peter, who wrote the different letters, it shows there's a certain humanity to our faith and that our own freedom, our own opinion as humans are respected and the spirit works within that. That we're not just robots, that the gospel just doesn't come down and God hand us the Bible. That would have been a lot easier. That would have been a lot less confusion if Jesus said, you people are all going to get this all wrong, I'm going to write it down for you, and you just follow what I told you to do. That would have been much simpler to do. 
or dictated. We already know that he didn't dictate it because it shows us how the Lord wants to use us and our own freedom and our own choices to be able to proclaim the gospel. Now, what's interesting about all this is that we have no reason to believe that any of these four gospels were actually written during the time Jesus was alive. Now you have eyewitnesses who saw things, and then what did they do afterwards? They began proclaiming it. There was an oral tradition. So we sort of talked about that a few weeks ago. You have the historical event, you have the oral tradition, and then you have things documented on paper. Okay, we have no evidence of Jesus writing anything down. So, each different individual wrote years after Jesus would have died and ascended into heaven. So let's just estimate that Jesus would have ascended into heaven in about the year 30 to 33 AD. Christ would have lived 33 years, more or less. And so, when do we believe that these these passages, these Gospels, were written. Now, it's not an exact science, and there's going to be people arguing about this and, and giving different theories. If you go online, you're going to see that a lot of contemporary scholarship will say that Jesus, of course, died around the year 30, that Mark would have been written about the year 66 to 70, Matthew a little later, from about 85 to 90, and then John, Matthew and Luke, from about 85 to 90, and then John later from about 90 to about 100 or 110. Now, you can go back and forth, but the truth is there's a lot of scholarship now, including I think Brant Petrie makes some very powerful arguments, that the Gospels were written a lot earlier. Now, we believe that we can, most scholars will agree that Paul's writings, his earlier writings, date from about the year 50 to 55 AD. Thessalonians would have been written about 50, which would have been nothing but about 20 years, more or less, after Jesus would have ascended into heaven. So why do we think that these Gospels would have been written earlier, potentially closer to this time, at least not as late as we say they are. And there are a number of different reasons. If you read uh, Brent Petrie's book, he'll explain it much better. The first is, is that none of the Gospels mention the very important and decisive event that happened in the year 70 AD. Who knows what that is? The destruction, the destruction of the temple. When the Romans came in, and said, we've had it with you, rebellious Jews. And they destroyed the temple. This is a really significant event. But none of the Gospels mention it. They don't even seem to really allude to it. So it appears, some scholars will say, that the Gospels were written before it because this would have been such a traumatic event. The other interesting thing is that Luke, when he writes the Acts of the Apostles, how does the Acts of the Apostles end? Does anybody know? So remember, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, which tell of the story of the early of our church. When does the Acts of the Apostles end? What, with what event? Or with what happening? 
Paul, after his travels, stays taken to prison, is being brought back to Rome for trial. He's being brought back to Rome for trial. And it ends. Now, we believe and we know that Paul would have died in Rome at the beginning of the early persecution of the church in about the year 64 AD. So, well, here's Paul, and he's doing all this preaching. Why wouldn't have Luke written about, if Luke really wrote back in about the year 85 or 90, why wouldn't he have written about the death of Paul? It doesn't make any sense. It's counterintuitive. So the argument is that Luke would have been before 64 AD. Because the Acts would have been written before that. So let's say it's even 62 AD. It was very, very close. So let's say it's 63 AD that it was written. Well, we know the Gospel was written before the Acts of the Apostles because the Acts of the Apostles at the beginning says, hey, I know you read my Gospel. I know you know the life of Jesus. So is it possible, let's say, that Luke would have even written it 10 years before or five years before? That's another distinct possibility if you study it. Also, it does appear, and some scholars will agree or disagree with this, that Paul, in some of his letters, remember the letters come towards the end of the second part of the New Testament, seem to quote some of the Gospels, even quoting Luke's Gospel. Now, if that's true, and Paul was writing as early as this, a lot of scholars will say that you can believe that most of the Gospels would have been written potentially between 55 and, let's say, even 65 AD. That's a good 20, potentially even 30 years before. Most scholars will still say John was written much later because we know that John did not die. John was exiled and we believe lived to be a lot longer. So the earliest Gospels could have been written within 20 years of Jesus' death. Why is this important? Or why is this significant? Because your memory is a lot better of remembering things that happened 20 years before rather than 40 years before. Would y'all agree with that? Maybe not. Maybe some of you have super memories. I have a hard time remembering what I did yesterday. But again, it goes back to the fact that Jesus and the Spirit inspiring the, the authors didn't just dictate. Remember we talked about that picture of Matthew whispering, the angel whispering in Matthew's ear? That's not how it happened. What happened was, is they were inspired and they used their own memories. Certain things came up that were important certain things that they remember maybe differently than the other ones remembered. But they were all put together in order to communicate this deeper message. Some of them still would have been alive uh, at the time, at the earlier time, observers who gave accounts would still have been alive. Absolutely, and they could have drawn it from other accounts. Now, what we do is, as I mentioned, we call these first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels because they give a synopsis of Jesus' life and his teaching. John's different. John is much more mystical. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And Jesus would get in these long prayers, very difficult to understand, very mystical. Now, some will say the reason is because Mary, of course, infused the Gospel and in teaching John about who Jesus was. 
Also, John was the beloved disciple. He would have had a different perspective, and he lived a lot longer. He was able to draw more insight from it. But one of the, the, the things that I remember, I always love sharing when I talk about Gospels, when I was in the seminary, I had a professor who talked about John as the eagle. In the Old Testament, there are these creatures that sit around the throne. I forget, was that in Daniel or Ezekiel? There's the bull, the lion, the man, angel, and the eagle. And the early church fathers took these figures and sort of attributed them to the different evangelists. Well, the one who attributed John was the eagle. And, and, and so I had this professor who, who said to me, if you want to understand John's gospel, it's like the eagle. What does the eagle do? The eagle is much higher. When an eagle flies, it flies very, very high. And what does the eagle do? It sees its prey, and it circles, circles, until it finally goes into swoop. And so in the same way with John, it's so much more mystical. He takes a perspective and looks at it. He hovers, he watches, he sees. He's not so much on the ground level until he swoops in on the truth. And so it's kind of an interesting way of coming to understand the approach of John as being so radically different and richer uh, than the other Gospels. John the Divine, because he focuses so much on the divinity of Jesus, which we're going to see next time, rather than his humanity. Now, although we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago, I do want to sort of make a brief point. What about these lost Gospels? We talked about how the canon was formed. People, if you go to Barnes & Noble, the lost Gospels, uh, the hidden Gospels, that there are all these other works that supposedly the church has been hiding from people for thousands of years or hundreds of years that we don't want you to know about because they will corrupt your view of who Jesus is. Well, are there other Gospels out there? Yes, there are. However, a number of them were anonymous, and the early church did not, was not interested in these anonymous Gospels. They wanted ones that could claim to be eyewitnesses that specifically were apostolic. Now, you also had some Gospels that claimed to have been written by different apostles or different eyewitnesses. The problem is this is that not only could you see errors in some of the texts, like the Gospel of Thomas. Oh, wait, we don't believe that women need to become men in order to get to heaven. We talked about that. But these Gospels didn't exist within the first 75, 100 years of the church. They came much later. Now, maybe not two to 300 years later, but they came after when the, the rise of Gnosticism and this sort of idea... This, this early heresy of the church. They came as a result of that. And so even in the early church, they could realize, hey, wait, we haven't been really hearing about this gospel much, or the gospel of Pilate, or the gospel of Judas, or the gospel of Thomas. Those came much later. And I think most scholarship can dictate now, uh, if you read the books, that they were not very early on. They came much later out of the Gnostic sect and not from people who had direct connection to Jesus. Now, scholarship will also show that it appears that maybe Matthew and Mark and Luke would have drawn from other sources, and sometimes when they share stories, they may have shared or drawn from other texts. 
maybe Matthew, draw a loop drawing a little bit from Matthew and Mark, and you can go read all kinds of Bible stories, or, or biblical uh, scholarship that talks about that. Where they came from, you can read more about in uh, Brent Petrie's book, and I'm not necessarily going to get into that. Am I, is this making sense so far? I mean, I'm trying to give you how the Bible came to be and how the Gospels came to be in as short of and as succinct of a period as time as possible. But here's the question, though, that we, all, we want to look at next. We talked a bit about, when I talked about the Bible, literary genres. You know, we have poetry, we have history, we have myth, we have letters, we have wisdom, we have songs. What literary genre is the gospel? Are the gospels? Biography. Who said that? Biography. It, it, okay, you're right. It is a biography, but not like the biographies we know today. The biographies we know today, you're going to read it, and it's going to tell you what you know. John Adams ate for breakfast during his second year of pre presidency. That is not the type of biography that the gospel writers were talking about or interested in. Scholars will say now that it was a type of biography known in the ancient world that we generally call the bios, bio-life, the bios. It is a certain type of literary genre and that they have other types similar to the gospels that exist particularly in the ancient Greek world. Off the top of my head, I cannot tell you any of the other characters written about uh, in these biographies, or these early biographies, but they all share certain characteristics. One of the characteristics that this type of genre that the gospel is, this biography is, is that they were all pretty sharp. They were not long. They weren't, you know, the, the, the five-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson, even though supposedly if, I have a friend of mine who's been reading that big LBJ biography, and it's supposed to be pretty interesting, but they're short. A lot of them begin or start off with an ancestry to talk about who the, 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 the ancestors that go back in history were that led up to the personage or the figure that the biography is about. And so you see that in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew. Both going back in different genealogies, trying to highlight different aspects of who Jesus was as king, as man, and as Messiah. But one of the most important things is, is that in these biographies, they are not written in chronological order. We talked about this before. We, as moderns, this is how we write biographies. I want to read in everything in chronological order. Do not take our own understanding of biography and insert it 2,000 years ago. They were not interested in chronology, and not that they wanted to make things up, but they were more interested in something deeper what we would say would be the substance rather than the details or the verbatim recording of what Jesus said. For us, we want to know exactly what this person said. We want it recorded. We want it dictated word for word. 
Back then, that wasn't what was so, so important, particularly because they didn't have iPhones or cameras. What did they have to rely on? They had to rely on memory. They had to rely on things being passed on an oral tradition. And you know what can happen through things getting passed on. One word might switch here, one word might switch there before it is passed on and before it is actually recorded. So what happens is, is people will look at the four gospels and say, oh, wait a second, you know, uh, the four gospels, there's contradictions. Things aren't exactly the same, therefore they're not true. Now we've already seen that you can have four different accounts of an automobile wreck and you can still believe that the accounts are true because of the differences the discrepancies in the different accounts. But what's happening is when people see these contradictions, they say, oh, it's not true because they're judging the Gospels according to our own concept of what historical accuracy ought to be. The problem is we can't miss the forest for the trees. If all we do is sit here and nitpick little details, we're going to miss the intention of the author. Remember, we talked about what's the most important in reading scripture? The literal meaning. What the author intended. And what was the intention of the author? Not to necessarily give every little detail of what Jesus said and to mark it down, but instead for what? To show how God was working through history. How God in the person of Jesus Christ was bringing salvation. And so you may have different authors inspired by the same spirit from different perspectives, all drawing from their own memories, but also with different intentions of trying to show how God worked. And so there are very big discrepancies, even in the Gospels. Did we talk about uh, the, big, the big question or challenge of when the Last Supper took place? Did we talk about that? Did we mention it? When did the Last Supper take place? What day? What day? Huh? Yeah. But what day? Did anybody, anybody know? Huh? Well, okay. Let's, let's try this out. What day of the week did Jesus resurrect on? Sunday. Okay, we know that. What day did he die on the cross? Friday. Friday. Because the Sabbath would have been Saturday, and you can't work on the Sabbath. So Jesus would have died on the cross on, Sat on Friday, died on the cross on Friday, buried, rose again on Sunday. So when do we believe the Last Supper took place? Thursday, because we celebrate Holy Thursday, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, that it would have happened before that, Jesus would have had the last supper on Thursday, gone and spent the night in prison, and then tried and then crucified on Friday. Does that make that, that, that chronology make sense to you? Well, that is the chronology in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's not the chronology in John. John's completely different. And how do we know this? Because in John's gospel, whenever Pilate takes Jesus and presents him to the crowd and says, Ecce homo, here's the man. 
So this is the day that he would have been crucified. John says it's at the same time the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. Again, we didn't get into a lot of this, and we're not going to actually have a lot of time to get into it, but Christ's death is seen as connected to the Old Testament. Is that Passover sacrifice? I don't remember, I don't know if if we talked about it last week, where you know in Exodus to, before they were freed from Egypt, the angel of death passed over, and if there was the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed that day on the tent, the angel of death would have let let them be. So every year the Jews would celebrate the Passover, and they would slaughter a lamb in the temple that you cook that night before you celebrate the Pat in order to celebrate the Passover. So what happens is the last supper, you would have taken the animal that was sacrificed, that lamb and roasted it and eaten it at the Passover dinner. But what's happening is in Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, they eat, they're eating the lamb. They're marking out the different parts of the Passover dinner, which assumes that the lambs had already been sacrificed earlier that day. But for John, Jesus is presented at the time that the lambs are being sacrificed, which meant the Passover was going to happen that night. But guess what? Jesus was already dead. So they're two separate days. How do you reconcile the two? Well, there are all these different ideas, but ultimately I think Ratzinger in his Jesus of Nazareth part two gives a good explanation that John was probably the true story. John was the one that probably happened. And Jesus took the Passover meal and changed it because he was the lamb. He changed it a little bit and gave it a new meaning. But regardless, we're not going to get into the minutia of this. It can show how there's different accounts and different stories, but yet we still believe the substance, regardless of the details, because what matters is the deeper theological and spiritual message that the gospel writers are trying to communicate. And so, when we read the gospels, we read about the life of Jesus regardless of however they came about from these human different ways, and that we encounter the living Lord Jesus, who was, we certainly believe, was an historical person. And this is the big thing that we're going to sort of wrap up on before we take our break and move into the, um, the, the looking at the life of Jesus himself. Was Jesus actually an historical person? All of this assumes, yeah, it is. But there are a lot of people out there, scholars, who believe that Christ was not an historical person. That this was all made up. That it's all a myth. Now, I'll tell you that, again, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I don't think there are very, very many scholars out there who will argue that Jesus didn't exist that is complete fabrication. There are some, and there are some good arguments out there, at least ones that warrant reflecting upon, that question certain ideas. You know, because we have the gospel accounts, Jesus is mentioned by a couple of other authors, Pliny and Josephus a little bit later, but you don't have a lot of other accounts attributing for 
the reality of who Jesus was or even some of these other historical figures. So the question then is, is well, is Jesus a myth? Particularly because if you read the Gospels, a lot of them, a lot of the Gospel, the life of Jesus, seems to be written like a myth. Remember we talked about the hero of the thousand faces? Jesus, as part of his life, falls into that. This deeper understanding of the monomyth, the hero that goes to win some decisive victory in order to find union with his father or whatever. But you can see strains of other myths in the life and the story of Jesus. If you read the, the Greek mythology, Zeus on a number of occasions kind of took human form on. He also took swan form on and other things like that. So geez, God became man. Even though, hey, it's a little different. Usually those gods took on human form. They didn't remain human. And they did it not in order to save anybody, but in order to go have sex with some woman. That's not what our, our God does. Also, Jesus was the healer and wonder worker. You can look, particularly in Greek mythology, there is a Greek god, Aslepius, I can't pronounce that right, Aslepius, who was another wonder worker who healed people and did these things. So you're going to have some scholars who will say, well, all they did was, the Jews did, was take these wonder working um, accounts and insert them into uh, the gospel. And then the dying and rising, the resurrected gods. You can see that in the myths of Mithras and other ones like that. And so they say, well, Jesus, it's all a myth. The gospel's a myth. Jesus wasn't a real person. But if you begin doing a little more research, and Brant Peachy will address this, the gospels are not written like myths. If we're going to be serious about genre criticism, the genre, they're their own genre. It's a biology. It's a bios, a biography not like myths. One of the things, and I'll give you just one thing, very important. One of the thing about myths is that they're normally written in mythological time, like in the beginning. The first 11 chapters of Genesis sort of written as myths, but in no way, shape, or form can you claim that the, gospel, the gospels were written like myths. So listen to this passage here, and you will see why I say that. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, an historical person, that all should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria, another historical person in a historical place. All went out to be enrolled, each to his own city. And so you can look in that passage right there to see Luke mentioning very historical people. You see Pilate, you see Herod, you see Caesar Augustus throughout the Gospels. If this was a myth, why are they mentioning historical people? It's too much history, too many things that can be verified, particularly in the Gospels, through other historical research, to claim that somehow this is a myth because it's not written like a myth. And I'll close with this great quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to actually put the context of the quote online. C.S. Lewis, who wrote uh, you know, Mere Christianity, which I, of course, encourage everybody to read, who was you know, friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, one of the inklings in the early part of the 20th century, was an atheist, 
but a very well-learned and well-educated man who studied mythology. And he had a conversion to God and then a conversion to Christianity. But he dealt with this issue of mythology. He knew myths. He knew stories. He wrote his own myths and stories. And he came up against this claim that Jesus was a myth, or the Gospels were myths. And so in a letter to a friend, he wrote this, and he sort of sums it up perfectly. Now the story of Christ is simply a true myth. Talking about different ideas of mythology. A myth working on us in the same way as the others. Remember, the myth tells this deeper truth about humanity and creation. But with this tremendous difference that it really happened. And one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's myth where the others are men's myths. And so I think we can say, and you can see it in the early church, that a lot of those myths that were revealed to the, that the pagans told all had certain elements of truth, but in Yahweh's divine plan, Christ fulfilled them all. And so just because there are mythological elements doesn't mean the gospel's not true, but instead, as C.S. Lewis said, that Jesus took all of those strands and in himself, according to the plan of God, fulfilled them in his person. And so keeping that in mind, we're going to take a little break for about five minutes. Then we're going to come back and then really begin to look at the historical Jesus and examine the life of Christ and get into some other interesting stuff before we pass it on to Juan. So take a five minute break, uh, sign up if you haven't, have some food and we'll be right back. So uh, after sort of looking at, after sort of looking at uh, the Gospels and where they came from and trying to understand that a little bit better, what I wanna do today is focus on the life of Jesus as an historical person. Now, when we talk about, if you know anything about biblical scholarship, when you talk about the historical Jesus, this was a big movement in the 80s and 90s of scholarship, often very liberal scholarship, trying to find out exactly what Jesus said and exactly what he did. And if you listen to those scholars, basically, we know nothing. Maybe they're like one or two words. Most people today in the Catholic world don't pay too much attention to that. Uh, but there was a lot of work done, and I think it's important. If you're going to understand who Jesus was, what he said, and how he lived, you've got to understand him as a Jew. He came from that tradition that we talked about last week, the Jewish tradition that pointed towards him. Now, there are different interpretations of it. Ratzinger does a great job in uh, drawing, in the Jesus Nazareth book, drawing from... Uh, some rabbinical sources and some of the way some scholarship was done about Jewish rabbis looking at it and helping us understand some of the things Jesus did, the way he acted, and the way he behaved. So really interesting stuff in that regards. Brant Petrie also really makes, that's his sort of thing, of trying to situate Jesus and his life within an uh, historical perspective, but a Jewish perspective. But particularly, we talked about, or I think Heather talked about last week, looking at salvation history of how sin is in the world and that God, Yahweh, has worked throughout history using the Jewish people in order to bring salvation, not only to the Jews, 
but also to the whole world, the Gentiles. And so there was this figure who was going to be sent, the Messiah, that they were all waiting for, that would come to save God's chosen people. Now, during the time of Jesus, they were waiting for the Messiah. There were prophecies, um, a lot of them from the Old Testament, many of the book of Daniel, pointing to this figure who was going to come to restore the kingdom of God, who was going to be called the Son of Man, and who was going to have to die in order to bring about this salvation and this redemption. The problem was, in the minds of a lot of the Jews at the time, they didn't fully necessarily understand the full meaning of the scriptures, the prophecies, and were waiting for a political messiah. Because at the time of Jesus, what was happening? Were the Jews free? No, they weren't. They were under control by the Romans. And they had just gotten free of being controlled by the Greeks. And so they wanted a political messiah, one who was going to come kicking behind and taking names. And instead, what kind of messiah did they get? Again, messiah means the anointed one, one who's anointed by God. Jesus, of course, anointed by the Spirit. One who came in weakness, humility, and rather than slaughtering others, allowed himself to be slaughtered as the lamb led to slaughter. So his being anointed was, yes, to free the Jews from slavery, but not slavery and captivity to the Romans, but instead slavery to sin and to evil and to Satan. And so to understand who Jesus really was and a lot of the sayings, you've got to see him in a historical perspective as a Jew and as the Messiah who's come to fulfill these different prophecies. And there are plenty of books written out there, many of them very good books, uh, that can help us situate Jesus in a historical perspective. Uh, Deacon Juan was just mentioning that uh, he made a trip to the Holy Land, and I've done the same thing, uh, but it was about 20 years ago. If you really want to talk about understanding the historical perspective and even the cultural perspective of who Jesus was, at some point in your life, take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, particularly with someone who gets it. A, a, a priest or organization that can explain Jesus from that historical perspective. Not only from that historical spiritual perspective, but just by going there. I remember the greatest blessings of my life. I was able to be there during Holy Week of 1997. We had Holy Thursday Mass in the upper room on Holy Thursday night. We walked down to the Garden of Olives, spent the night in prayer at the Garden of Olives, the next morning, you know, we woke up and went into the city. We did the way of the cross from 1 until about 2 or 2.30. And then we were there at 3 o'clock on Calvary, putting our rosaries into the place where Jesus died. And then we did, um, we did our, our liturgy that evening. And then at 5 o'clock in the morning, we were there at the tomb opened. So... Let's talk about putting flesh on things. When you get to actually go to Mount Tabor, when you go to these different places, uh, this historical Jesus, uh, the understanding of the lilies of the field, to see what they were, to be able to see what Jesus saw, and to be at these different places, the Sea of Galilee. Once you experience it, how many of you have been to the Holy Land before? You have. Doesn't it make you see the Bible in a different perspective? For me, what always struck me was how beautiful it is. 
you think it's like, oh, Israel's going to be desert and rocks. Well, that's some beautiful land there. Absolutely beautiful. Anyhow, so it just helps us to better understand who Jesus was. But what I want to do is briefly look, particularly for those who may not know about it, briefly look at the life of Jesus that we learn from the Gospels. We've, we've seen where the Gospels came from. We've seen sort of this historical context. Uh, the, the Jews waiting for the Messiah. Christ comes, and he comes in the Incarnation. We're going to look more about this next time. Incarnation to become God becoming man. The moment of the Annunciation of the angel appeared to Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. We're going to talk a lot more about Mary later. But he comes as a baby, and he is born of the natural way. Even though he didn't have a father, God in heaven is his father. And he was born in weakness. He was born completely hidden in this very remote area. And so we could take the life of Jesus and the beginning mysteries we celebrate at Christmas and really realize, you know, what did Jesus teach us? That God doesn't, we, we expect God to come in pillars of fire and thunder and lightning. And while that may happen, when God enters the world, nobody noticed. And he entered in poverty, weakness, and simplicity. And the same way, when God comes into our lives, it's not often going to be in power. It's going to be hidden in a remote place, and most people are not even going to notice. And it's coming as a child, of course, teaches us the value of childhood, but also the value of life and weakness. And then, if I was God, I first of all would not come as a kid. I would come as probably a dragon or something. <laughs> but let's say I came as a man. I would not go, like Jesus being born in Nazareth is like him being born in, I don't know, Shetania. You know, it's in the middle of nowhere. Nothing against Shetania. But if I was God, I'd be born in Rome, baby. I'm telling you, or New York City, or Paris. It's the exact opposite. But then if I'm going to be God, I'm not going to come as a baby. And what else am I going to do? I am going to come December from heaven, full power, ready to go and destroy my enemies. Jesus doesn't begin his public ministry for 30 years. Jesus, based, Jesus lived at home for 30 years. So any of you have kids who are 30 years old living at home? <laughs> and children are just trying to be like Jesus. So think of it. He lived for 33 years. 30 years where it was completely hidden. And this is what we do is we, we take the, the historical Jesus and then through meditation and mystery, the mysteries of Christ's life. Because if God truly enters in, there's so much we can learn. That, that the hiddenness of God, for 30 years, he wasted so much time. Or it appears he wasted so much time. What is the purpose, though, for staying hidden, staying secluded, working, being obedient to his parents, until finally he began his public ministry, and he was only done it for three years. He gathers his 12 apostles. He teaches, his main core teaching being the Sermon on the Mount, where he takes the, the law of the Old Testament and sort of, I'd say, supplants it, but fulfills it in a much deeper law, the law of the Spirit. He works miracles. He heals people. People begin following him. But also, which I always found so striking, Jesus is God becoming man. He had friends. 
He had the 12 apostles. He had Mary Magdalene as his friend. He had the women who followed. Jesus wasn't like, hey, I'm God, just leave me alone. That's what have been me, basically. <laughs> he had his introvert time. He prayed. Um, and that's one of the things that we often don't focus on. Christ's life, even the public ministry, was marked by prayer. There's always time where he's going off to commune with the Father, to come into contact with God, to be able to, 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 to spend time, whole nights in prayer. So if you're going to really understand the life of Jesus, it's one of the things, go through the gospel and notice every time Jesus goes to prayer. Always praying, always in communion with the Father. But, of course, we speed to the end. Where do we mostly focus on the importance of Christ's life is at the end. After his ministry, the people turn on him, particularly the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders that saw Jesus as a threat. They got the Romans involved. They put him on trial. They crucified him and killed him. And so, but what we see now is, of course, Jesus is suffering and dying the death of a common criminal. What, are, what does this point to? It points to Christ being, that's a sacrifice. He's fulfilling the Passover by shedding his own blood. His body is the new temple. And so, Christ unites heaven and earth. He conquers sin and death. But once he dies, by shedding his blood, the new Passover lamb... He goes to the grave for three days, what we call in the Old Testament Sheol, the realm of the dead, but then rising again on the third day. And this is what's important, y'all. One of the things that I do in teaching, and I want y'all to understand, and working with the students, I have three questions. The three most important questions that any, uh, any of us, by the time you leave here, you better be able to ask, answer. One is, why do you believe in God? Now, the first, the, we should have answered that a few weeks ago when we talked about the argument from science or the arguments from philosophy. That as much as we say, well, I believe in God because I, I felt his presence. Well, that's not really a good argument. You believe in God because you can make some good theological and philosophical arguments. The other question that most of us cannot answer is why are we Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why do you believe in Jesus? And there's only one answer. Because you believe in his resurrection. This, St. Paul tells us, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, our faith is in vain. And some of the older students have heard me talk about this. I've given talks about it last year. We are Christians because we believe this guy named Jesus who claimed to be God, died and rose again three days later, and is not dead anymore and it's still alive, and it's still working in the world. So the question is, why do we believe in the resurrection? Because it sounds crazy. If anybody came to you and said, oh, you know, my, my friend, he died, and three days later came back, and he's still alive, you'd think that person was crazy. But this is the fundamental tenet of Christianity. We believe as a historical fact that the person of Jesus died and rose to life. Why do we believe that? Again, I could give a whole class on this, and I'm going to hopefully point to some, some things that you can read a little bit more, and if you read Brent Petrie's book, he'll explain it too. The first is this, the reason. How do we come to know that anything about Jesus? From the eyewitnesses who witnessed 
the resurrection, not the exact resurrection of Jesus, but that they encountered him risen after he died and came back to life. And those apostles died for it. And they didn't die, this is clear, they didn't die for what they believed, but they died for what they saw. That's a big difference. I can die, I believe in freedom, like Braveheart. Freedom! And then I get, I get eviscerated. So, but I die for freedom. There's a big difference if someone comes up to you afterwards and says, I want you to deny that you saw Father uh, teaching catechism tonight or we're going to kill you. Most of you will probably say, I didn't see Father at all. <laughs> You'd be smart. But if you were not going to lie, you're going to say, you got to kill me. That's what I saw. They went and preached and they died because they said, I saw this guy. He came back to life. I put my finger in the side. You can kill me, but I'm not going to deny it. So the testimony of the apostles is very powerful. Number two, in the Jewish tradition and the Greek tradition, there's no concept of one person resurrecting. In the Jewish tradition, there's an idea that all of Israel will resurrect, but from the Jewish the Greek tradition, there's nothing, zero, zero. And so this idea that somehow they would have made this story up by taking it from someplace else, there's no other place you could have taken it from. It was completely unique. Now you have other resurrection myths, but as we saw, the way that it's described is not as a mythology. There's gods rising back to life only to abandon their bodies. This is not what happened. Another very powerful argument is the Sabbath. Remember, the Old Testament, the Jews celebrated the Sabbath on a Saturday. Christians from the earliest dates, who were Jews, who then became Christians, begin celebrating the Sabbath on Sunday. Why? Because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. You had, they, a lot of them followed a lot of the old Jewish rules. That was the whole thing in uh, Paul, to the Galatians, and these Judaizers, and the different struggles that the early church had, which we will get into a little bit later on. But they changed the Sabbath. All of these things, and you can give a lot more arguments of why we believe it's valid and legitimate to believe in the risen Lord Jesus. But in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the reason they give is they saw the empty tomb. They also saw, as we'll see, the cloth rolled up. And then the fact that the Gospels, who are the people who testify in the Gospels that Jesus is risen from the dead? The first people, the women. In Jewish times, people didn't listen to women. But yet, that they were going to say these women, women said it, knowing that most people would discredit it, is another testimony that something happened that changed. And then the fact that from that, Christ's prediction that the Gentiles would convert. Immediately, once Paul started preaching, all of these people who were not Jews began believing, began converting, and became Christians. As a result, Christianity spread like wildfire. And then after the resurrection, 40 days, Christ ascends into heaven. And so this is what's so key, y'all. And again, I'm always so surprised when I, I talk to people. Jesus rose from the dead. He has a body. He has the same body that was in the tomb. He still does. He brought that body into heaven. He will continue to have that body. And that he said that if we are baptized and we follow him, we will share in that resurrection. We're going to get our bodies back too. What exactly will that look like? Ah, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. 
But the thing is, is heaven is not a spiritual place. It is a place where there will be bodies, perfected, glorified bodies that can walk through walls and do all kinds of other stuff, but we're not going to die again. Jesus is still alive, and he promises that if we are baptized, we will be able to share in his resurrection. The reason that we are Christians is as crazy as it seems that we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Miracles, all that other stuff is great, but it all comes down to the resurrection. Now, I want to, that's like the super brief overview of Jesus' life. But of course, I encourage you to read the scriptures because that's where you really encounter Jesus. Not just read them as an historical document, but what we call Lexio Divina, to be able to take a passage, to pray over it. We talked about that earlier. And the passage, we believe the Spirit is active in your life, can come alive, where you can encounter the Lord, encounter the risen Lord in the scriptures. But of course, we're going to see that because Jesus is risen, we encounter him in the church, the sacraments, uh, the Eucharist, our brothers and sisters. The Lord is alive and working in the church today. But the fundamental question that we've got to ask, though, is Jesus, during his life, resurrecting the dead, but during his life, claimed to be God. Now, we can look at Scripture and see that Jesus, on a number of occasions, uses the phrase, I am, which is Yahweh, the Old Testament name. He says, I am, I am Yahweh, I am one with God. He claimed divinity. In the transfiguration, he was transfigured before them. His divinity shone through. He had the power to forgive sins. And Scripture tells us that they were like, hey, only God has the power to forgive sins. But if Jesus said he had the power to forgive sins, therefore he's claiming to be God. And then what was one of the things they accused him of before killing him? Blasphemy. You made yourself equal to God. So Christ claimed to be God. What's the biggest proof that he's really, truly God? I believe it would be the resurrection. If I claim to be God and I die and come back in three days and walk through walls and stuff, yeah, okay, you're God. I can handle that. But... C.S. Lewis brings up in his, in his most famous passage, probably in Mere Christianity, when people deny that Jesus was God, he says, when you look at the life of Jesus, you've got three options. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Jesus is, first of all, was he a liar? Completely lie, I'm God, but he wasn't. Why would Jesus lie? Because if you look at the rest of his life, he died for a lie. He taught so much truth. He was considered a very wise and holy prophet. Very hard to believe that Christ would have been a liar about who he was. He could have been a lunatic, crazy, thinking that he was God. Most of the time, someone says they're God, you think, okay, you're crazy. The funny story, I don't know if I told you the story before, there was a guy who showed up at a priest's office and the priest says, can I help you? He goes, yeah, I need to sit with you. I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm the son of God. And the priest is like, I got mass in about five minutes. I need to get ready for it. And I need you there. So why don't you come, sit in front of you. We're all going to be good. Don't try to convince a crazy person that they're crazy. It's not going to work. But was he a lunatic? Well, there's no really evidence in Scripture that Christ was out of his mind. He seemed, he, he was able to reason with people, rational, people respected him. 
So if he wasn't lunatic, what's the other option? That he was Lord. And then I believe the resurrection certainly proves that. But what I want to sort of close with before we pass to the real fun stuff that I'm gonna, I want to show you all is what makes Jesus different from all the other prophet-type religious figures? Moses, Buddha, Muhammad, whatever. And this is something that has always struck me as so profound and what makes Jesus different. All those other guys came to say, if you follow this path of life, you will achieve heaven. Here's the Tao. If you follow the Tao, you will achieve heaven. If you follow the Ten Commandments, you will achieve heaven. If you do A, B, C, or D, you will achieve heaven. They taught a way. If you followed these things, you would find glory and divinity. You would achieve nirvana, the Eightfold Path, whatever. What did Jesus say? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus taught things, but he identified it with himself. No other figure, major religious figure, does that. And so, just as we said Christianity is not a religion of the book, but a religion of the word, as Christians, we primarily don't follow rules. We don't primarily follow a prescription that if we do A, B, C, and E, we get to heaven. There are rules, there are those things, but primarily... Christianity is about following a person. A person who we don't just know about, but a person whom we know, who's alive today, and even though we're not going to encounter him like we encounter each other, we can still encounter him in a deep, miracle, a mystical and spiritual way. It doesn't mean that we don't need to follow what he tells us to do, and it doesn't mean that church is not important, there are not rules, but ultimately Christianity is about following the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, for, for me, and I think for most all of us, the importance of knowing the person of Jesus, and knowing him as real, and alive, and historical, and that's what the goal was today, to sort of talk about that. I know we spent a lot of time on the Gospels and why they're credible, and then a little bit on the life of Jesus, but to be able to understand more about who Jesus was. And what I want to do is, uh, is do this. I don't know if I can find. Is Jesus a person? If I want to say, well, I, I want to know what, who Morgan was, or Matthew was, or Lane is, one of the things we want to do is we want to be able to know what that person looked like. For us, as, as humans, we're tangible. What does Jesus look like? Well, if you look in the earliest depictions of Jesus, I want to do that, look at it today, I, I'm using a little media today. I actually prepared more than just. <laughs> this is an image of Jesus dating from the year 425, the mosaic. And there's Jesus, 
good shepherd. The sheep there. Here's another of Jesus with the catacombs in the center with his apostles. Dressed almost as a Roman figure. But it's not Jesus there. <laughs> Here is another one of Jesus there, three people coming up to him, trying to find, and then here Jesus again in catacombs as the good shepherd. You can, I, I put a link, so I'll, I'm much better pictures of what Jesus looked like, uh, these different images of Jesus. Here you have another one uh, from one of the catacombs, the healing of the paralytic. What do you notice in all of these images of Jesus? The early, these are the earliest images, dating back like, for the first maybe 300 years. What do you notice? Particularly, uh, Jesus doesn't have a beard in any of them. He doesn't look anything like the Jesus we know of. That's what we normally think. How do, we, when, how do we come to know Jesus? Now, you, I'm, I'm, I can point this to you. There was a certain time, about the year 400, pop, 350, 400, when all of a sudden these images of Jesus just disappeared. And you began seeing the traditional images of Jesus uh, like this, the, with the beard. Now notice, you know, Jesus, long hair, beard, and he has a little piece of hair right there. Uh, that's from the catacombs. Here's the, a very, very ancient one. Jesus, the eyes, the nose. You begin seeing that early on. What brought about change? No, no. I'll explain because I don't have a lot of time. I'm going to try to get this as quickly as possible. What about the change? For the people who are listening online, I'm just letting you know that you're going to have to imagine this in your mind that we're looking at things with Jesus' beard. Scholars will believe that it was this time that the true image of Christ's face began to be known throughout the empire. Now, how do we know what Christ's face looked like? This is something that I would love to spend a whole class on, and maybe I have enough videos I'm going to put to talk in. It's what we believe to be burial cloth of Jesus that we call the Shrabatura. Alright? Now, this is there's all kinds of science and different things on this and I can do my best to sort of try to explain a lot of it to you but we have, in the city of Turin there's a rich history of its existence, what we believe to be the burial cloth of Jesus. There are different arguments that it's not really burial cloth of Jesus, but I can make enough arguments that it really is. And, and, and this, is the, this is what it looks like, the front part. You can see the face of Christ there, his hands bent inwards, there, some blood stains, and the feet of the bottom. And they did carbon 14 testing, and basically, it was actually about 30 years ago this month. But since then, they realized the section they took the carbon 14 section from, it was dated to about the year 1400, was actually taken from a section that was added much later. You can look at the back, okay, of it. Oh, come on, come on. You look at the back of it, here you have the crown of thorns. This is 
tear and all the scourging. You, you can go and get online and see the, 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 the terrible scourging Jesus went through. And this cloth was, in about the year 1898, they took photographs of it. And when they looked at the negative of it, the negative came out as a positive. And so you can clearly see the face of Jesus, his body, and the back of the crown of thorns, and the, the, the beating. You can see when Mel Gibson, if you watch The Passion of the Christ, he depicted what it really looked like. We know what a Roman scripture would have looked like. And so what happened was we believe that this shroud began moving around. They would have saved it because they mentioned it. And they were probably that image of resurrected Jesus on the, on the, how it was formed. That's a different story. We won't get into that right now. Um, I'm going to give you some elements you can. But it was folded in a way that you could only see the face of Jesus. And artists began depicting it. And so they've done a lot of studies about early iconography and how it matches up almost perfectly to the face of Christ on the shroud. How this image was formed it's very hard to say, we still don't know. But we have pollen from the first century, uh, Jerusalem, we have flowers. There's so much evidence that points to this is the burial cloth of Jesus. I, I remember learning about it as a kid. I've seen it. I started in 1998, and I've done a lot of studies on it. This is one of the most fascinating things you'll ever study in your entire life. And for me, you could make a lot of arguments why you shouldn't be Christian, you're going to be hard-pressed to convince me this is not the burial cloth of Jesus. Very, very hard-pressed. I've done a lot of study on it. And I'm going to put links to some documentaries that you can watch. And it will teach you by studying it. There are all kinds of books there. But there are arguments against it. In fact, one of the arguments that came out this summer was the flow of the blood on the hands. Notice the blood is the wrists. Because Jew, the, the, the Romans wouldn't have crucified you in the palm because it ripped your hand off. They put it in the wrist and you hung there. The blood from the side of Christ right here. Uh, there are arguments for and against. And so this is constantly debated and it needs to be debated. But the study of the Shroud of Turin, they're actually, if you look at the, uh, in, in the Shroud itself, um, at the top, you can see there's actually, scientists have found pieces of the, sh the, sh the crown of thorns inserted in there. Uh, there are flower prints from the flowers that would have been over Christ's body. There's the shoulder wounds from carrying the cross. What's interesting, though, is it appears that the image was formed by a man who was standing upright. Right here, you can see uh, this would have been his ponytail. Some scientists will claim that Christ would have been laid in the, in the shroud, and at the moment of the resurrection, his body would have been lifted up, and then it would have fallen through his body. Because even though there's blood on the shroud, there's no detachment of the blood. It was almost like his body became you know, transparent and it would have fallen through. Also, there's the faith, face cloth that was mentioned in Scripture that also we believe exists, but it exists in Spain. So and the shroud of Turin, for me, not only helps us to know what Christ looked like, but... This is where science comes in, that you can't prove that it's really Jesus, because we still don't know how that image was made, but that there's some freaky stuff going on in that. Uh, and there are some really, really great documentaries, and I've posted a couple of them, uh, or I will finish posting them online, 
I encourage you to watch them. Um, there are always new stuff coming out. How many of you have never heard of the burial cloth of Jesus? Raise your hand. The shroud. How many, you've all heard a little bit about it. All right, that's good. So I just love the shroud because it shows us the face of Jesus. It's how we come to know who Christ is. Uh, and we can study so much about and learn about his passion, death, and resurrection. There, there's just too many coincidences from the way Christ is described and the things in this image and the fact that it can, be, it can be pointed back to the first century or at least much earlier than carbon dating says. And the image also is only on the very, very surface. Only on the very surface. It doesn't go very, very deep at all. Uh, we can't describe how it got there but it makes the faith come alive. So I really suggest you reading some of the stuff about the shroud. We'll take a couple of minutes for questions and we'll let people pass. We'll come back next week and we're getting into more theology of not understanding who Jesus was, but about him being both God and man. How is it possible, and in the first, let's say, six, seven centuries of the church, how the early church worked out all these questions to say how he can be both God and man how he could be the son of God and equal to, but not the same as the father and the spirit uh, to get a better, deeper understanding theologically of who Jesus was. So let's go to the glory be. Glory be to the father and to the son and the Holy Spirit.